0: It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at wrtfm.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency, radio modulation The big sound from underground Hello everybody and welcome to A Public Affair. It's Wednesday so that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And we have a incredibly important and timely conversation today. We're going to talk about air quality. Obviously, uh, people, uh, hopefully, were paying attention to what was happening this past week on the East Coast. The air quality... Uh, was the worst ever i think recorded in the united states the air quality index was over 400 we're going to get to what the heck that number means um but of course even before it impacted the east coast uh in the middle of last week we were experiencing it here locally the canadian wildfires were having an impact on the air quality in um Madison and Wisconsin and parts of the Midwest. So, want to really have a conversation about what what this means, what we can expect in the future, why is it getting worse, what's going on, and what can we do to, you know, be ready for it and big picture remedy at what are steps that we individually and us as a nation can take. We're going to talk about that and all of those pieces. We have Professor Jonathan Martin joining us today. He is Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UW-Madison. Hello, Professor. How are you?
1: Good. How are you, Carousel? Thanks for having me.
0: Wonderful to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so let's sort of start at the beginning of what happened at the on the east coast of the united states last week
1: yeah there was a major canadian wildfire in the eastern part of canada that was in conjunction with a very unusually intense cyclone uh, that is a, a mid-latitude weather disturbance that the kind that brings us our snow in the winter and much of our rain in the fall and spring uh, was just offshore of new england and the circulation around these disturbances is counterclockwise and it and that circulation occupies large areas you know tens of states And so if you have a wildfire burning in central or northern Ontario, and a cyclone is fairly proximate to it, somewhere off the northeast coast of North America, uh, on the western side of those storms, the wind is coming from the north and northwest. And an enormous plume of smoke was released because the fire burned quickly where it was burning. And it was just ushered southeastward towards New York City, towards Philadelphia, towards Washington, D.C., by the winds around the cyclone. And so it didn't mm-hmm. have a chance to really diffuse and get thin and, you know, sort of uh, spread out, just came as one giant cloud. And uh, it was unbelievable.
0: And the level of intensity that happened, is this just sort of an unusual circumstances, all these things coming together? Or could this happen anytime there's a wildfire?
1: It can happen anytime there's a wildfire. In fact, almost certainly some location, usually not a major metropolitan area, some location proximate to the wildfire is going to experience those kinds of conditions. You know, high particulate matter, uh, really uh, serious degradation of air quality. Um, so let's say there's a big fire in, um, in Alberta, in Canada, and someplace, uh, you know, near Calgary. And some some of the small towns south of Calgary, under those same circumstances, are going to get an almost undiluted smoke plume from that fire. And it's going to have, you know, nearly the same consequences for individuals who live in that small town. In this case, it had consequences for tens of millions of people because the cloud of smoke came right over a major metropolitan region of North America.
0: And I I think you know there's multiple things going on one is it's hard to pay attention to something when it's not happening directly to you Mm -hmm. we live in a big world and there's sort of overwhelming things sometimes happening everywhere that's not necessarily an excuse or acceptable but it's perhaps an explanation Mm -hmm. and sort of the story of time right who Mm -hmm. has you have empathy for situations when they affect you personally but it also seems that this wasn't just the communities nearby it was A distance that people were sort of surprised by.
1: That's right. And that was a function of the intensity of the fire itself and uh, also the intensity of the circulation around the storm that was able to usher that smoke fairly in, in a fairly undiluted way over vast distances. So it wasn't just kind of billowing away from the fire itself, it was being carried by the winds of a well organized and fairly intense cyclone. So it was a set of circumstances that all had to conspire in, in, in the same direction to, to lead to that problem.
0: So how intense are the wildfires that are currently burning in Canada?
1: Now, it's a, a good way to ask that question and think about that question is how, why, how much different are they in late May, early June this year from other years? Yes. Yeah, so how, how anomalous are they? They're really anomalous. The month of May, as many of us around here know, because all of our lawns and various other greenery leaves are falling off trees in Madison because of the lack of water. We were about three and a half inches shy of our monthly average precipitation in the month of May. And nothing much has happened yet in June. Here we are on the 14th. So it's been an extended period of, of dryness. That's not just for southern Wisconsin. That's over the wide swath of central North America, including the prairie provinces of Canada and the eastern provinces of Canada. So the Canadian wildfire season is not in and of itself an unusual thing. It happens every year. The question is, when does it start, and how intense will it be? And this year, uh, we got a double whammy. It started early because of the dry May, and it's been an intense early start. And so that combination has really led to some unusual circumstances. And I think, as you mentioned in your intro, we've seen orangey skies, both at sunset and sunrise in Madison, through the second half of May, and even today, it's a little bit orangey. Yeah. That's a function of wildfire smoke in the sky. It can otherwise be just regular humidity, but if you're outside today, you realize the humidity's not that high. So that's wildfire smoke in the sky, uh, probably from a Western Canada fire, um, but not quite as intense as the ones that um, affected the the Middle Atlantic region.
0: Can you help break it down a little, and I I know your specialty is in, right, you know, atmospheric and, Mm. and, and the air quality, but can you help break us down a little of um? Sort of the basics of wildfire. Why is this the season started sooner? Like the impact of lack of rain in yep. the in the atmosphere impacting what happens on the ground.
1: Yeah. Well, as you might guess, and anybody who's ever walked around, uh, hiked in the woods gets a little nervous if things are too dry, because any little spark and sparks can be. Uh, can come naturally from lightning strikes and so on that's in fact what mo- what most of the western canadian wildfire season in july and august is spawned by lightning strikes mm. uh, from storms that are really not it's the air is so dry underneath the cloud head that the the precipitation's falling but evaporating before it hits the ground the lightning doesn't care and it hits a dry pine tree and things go crazy so if you have an extended period of dryness unusual dryness uh, and i think the eastern part of north america i know it's true in our own country in northeast united states was had an extreme snow drought this year. I think Central Park said its all-time minimum snowfall almost didn't snow at all in New York City this this winter. Central Park of New York City. Yeah, yeah, and my dad lives in Boston, and he loves the weather, and so he's always paying attention to it, and they didn't get much snow in Boston area either. So this was a widespread, and I think it was wider than that. Uh, So much of eastern Canada was a little bit below normal in snowfall. Then you put a dry May on top of that, all of the dead trees, all of the brush that's down at the ground in forests and there's large non- forests in Canada like there are in Maine and parts of uh, the Northeast, they're dry. They're tinder dry. And so a fire is going to start in this May compared to a fire that wouldn't, have, you know, the conditions just wouldn't have allowed that fuel to be so dry and combustible. If there had been a was. lightning
0: strike in other s- times of, of, right, or other years, right. it, it wouldn't have created the fire.
1: No, it hits wet. It hits wet debris. It hits wet trees. That they don't. They don't ignite. Exactly right.
0: And then talk to me about how it it expands from there. So it's more easy to catch fire. Yeah. And then with the dryness, everything next to it, it's more easy to spread. Yeah, absolutely it just, right. It just Every, keeps going.
1: Absolutely right. Everything's proximate to uh, a, any place that's dry in the northeastern part of North America is going to be dry over a wide area, like it is this year. So if you get an ignition someplace then it's going to be easily spread. And that spreading is even exacerbated by the arrival of, which happens every few days in the middle latitudes, uh, the arrival of a well-organized weather system that, that has a circulation and winds associated with it that will just work to assist in the spreading of the fire.
0: And something else, and I asked you this before we started The show, because something that when I was, you know, preparing for today really stuck out for me because it was nothing I'd ever thought about. Mm. It was talking about how these flames and these fires are now burning hotter. Never thought about that of there's different temperatures for fire.
1: I think this might be, again, um, a a condition of anomalous this year compared to other years because the fuel is so dry. Um, Again, getting back to the extended dry period. Yeah, so it... It's dry fuels that are being ignited, and they will burn hotter. They just will. I mean, everybody who has a fireplace in their home knows if you have wood that you've kept really dry for two or three winters in a garage or something, boy, you're going to get a nice fire in your house out of that, as opposed to stuff you might have just cut down and it got rained on last weekend. It's just wet fuel is not going to burn as hot. And so that's really as simple as that.
0: And then when it burns hotter, it burns up. Things that otherwise may not have been dissolved into the atmosphere.
1: Well, it'll completely consume the fuel if it's burning hot enough. That's right. That's Again, the analogy with your home is a really good one. If you have kind of wet wood and you're trying to keep a fire going in your fireplace, boy, it's a real struggle to keep that thing going. And the log you've put in there just won't burn all the way down. Whereas if it's bone dry, it's, it's ashes within an hour. And it's completely consumed.
0: So... John, what happens then when all of these things get into the atmosphere? how How come it doesn't go up or go down? Like what makes it carry and sort of sit in this sort of uh, level where it's attacking you know our yeah. breathing?
1: Yeah, the word we get for that is lofted. These, these okay. particles and the gases themselves, but mostly the particles get lofted. And so they're uh, the, the heat of the fire itself, gives them a buoyancy in the atmosphere and so they will rise um, in that buoyant updraft and then they just get to a level where they're so light and so small they are actually falling you know chicken little was right the sky is always (laughs) falling it's just falling at such an imperceptibly small speed that if it's being at the same time carried along by fairly strong horizontal winds at whatever level it's found itself it's going to take a long time for the um for the slow downward vertical motion of these small particles to really add up to coming from three kilometers above the ground it's not going to take very long to go 100 kilometers to the south and east because the wind speed is so strong so it takes forever for them to settle it doesn't take so long for them to move uh, north southeast or west depending on the direction of the wind
0: so that would make it that the impact of wired f- wildfire is that they can spread further than would that spread further than other pollutants then well
1: the smoke from the wildfire yeah the, the wildfire fire. itself might be fairly contained although even the edge of the wildfire can jump in what they call non-discrete jumps you don't just it doesn't have a continuous front edge something that's flaming at the top of a tree can fall 10 or 20 yards ahead of the fire line and start the new fire there so you mm-hmm. can the thing can jump in non-discrete ways but the um, but the smoke itself uh, is going to travel away from the fire site a lot faster than than uh, the fire will move itself, correct?
0: So how bad is this for air quality when there's, y- you know, I, as someone, again, we talked at the start of the show, I'm from a big city. I'm mm-hmm. not a campfire kind of person. <laughs> I, I'm, I have probably less knowledge than other people that live in yeah. Wisconsin and have done more, you know, camping than I have. Mm-hmm. But I just j- think about you know oh I've breathed in the smoke from a campfire yeah you don't want to be right there on the draft but yeah so how impactful impactful and dangerous is this air
1: no I don't know all the physiology about this so I can't speak about this in 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 an expert way but I know that in New York City was it last Wednesday or Thursday I can't remember the day I think it was Thursday maybe they had 500, between 400 and 500 pots per million of particulate matter, I think that was the measure, and the normal uh, regular air that's in a big city is something well under 50 or something like that. So this was 10 times more particulate matter that can kind of coat your lungs in a way that inhibits your ability to respire with oxygen. Uh, and we all know, as you said, it's a great example, sitting around a campfire, if the, if the smoke starts to blow towards you, the first thing you do is move. You can't breathe. And so and you're talking about probably the same types of concentrations of smoke-based particles and fire-based particles in that simple campfire incident as was plaguing the entire uh, Northeast Corridor on last Thursday.
0: So it's just amazing. Do we know some of the other health impacts? That it's not just respiratory, but are there other um, impacts by... Smoke or other particles in the air.
1: I believe there's other chemicals that can be, uh, you know, tied to some of these forest fires. I don't know if they present the same level of of health uh, risk, but that's a little bit outside my expertise, so I don't know the answer to that. But I suspect there's more than just the particulate matter that has to be concerned. uh, The one has to be concerned with.
0: And tell us about these numbers that you mentioned. That sort of the four hundred to five hundred air quality index numbers that were being recorded what is the air quality index what is it measuring what does it mean
1: uh it's measuring particulate of the the density of particulate matter in a given cube of air so that's a good standard way of saying hey your air is really polluted if the number is high Um, and there's various types of particles that can be measured too it's not just a general particulate measure and i think the two and a half micron and a micron is a one one millionth of a meter or something like that, um, roughly the, the width of a human hair or on the order of a human hair, those small particles, the kind that are emitted by smokestacks or forest fires are a really big deal. You have to keep them at a low value. Otherwise, people with uh, pre-existing respiratory conditions really suffer from tr- breathing in that air. And so having a, a, a really um, good way to measure that quantity of those particulates in the air is a, is a godsend. And so that's, the, that's what the Air Quality Index does, among other things. But I think that's one of the primary measures that it gives back. And on that day last week when New York was, uh, when we had a ground stop of an aircraft at LaGuardia, they couldn't even see where they were going on yeah. the ground. This has never happened before in New York City. And uh, that was the most polluted air in the world on that day. And I don't know that it wasn't the most polluted air of all time, but it was the most polluted air uh, uh, in the entire world on that day. And that's taken on some pretty big competition. Beijing, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, there's places that have some problems.
0: And how long does it take air like that to dissipate? Does it depend on... right? what's happening elsewhere that the cyclones and the and the wind patterns or is there sort of a a rule of thumb
1: no that's a great question there is no rule of thumb in fact my uh my daughter's partner was asking me that very question from philadelphia saying hey when are we going to be out of this and i said well that cyclone's going to be spinning around a little bit off the coast for much of tonight i think that was last thursday night into the early part of friday so it's going to take a while to get that plume out of there that's not the way all cyclones behave. Some of them are very progressive, moving quickly from east to west. And if they're the agent of dragging the air southward from Canada, then they're also going to be, if they move quickly, the agent to drag it out of New to York pull City it and away Philadelphia. With it. Yeah. So it depends on the cyclone, and it also depends on how long-lasting the fire is, the fire site. So if it's constantly churning out new smoke, then and you're in the firing line, uh, to use a term of art there. You're not going to get out of that if that cyclone keeps spinning around on top because it's
0: going to keep pulling the next. New this plume bunch of will smoke. go away, and the next plume will show we'll up.
1: Fill it in. Yep, that's exactly right. So it's extremely dependent on meteorological conditions. Very, very dependent on that.
0: How does this compare to what's happening in the rest of the world that you talked about? You know, this was the highest recorded in the in the U.S. in New York City. Maybe the the highest. Um, in the U.S. and in, in the world at that moment, yeah. but it, there's other air pollution issues across the world. There are at yeah. any given time,
1: and they don't all have to do with fire. That's, yes. that's definitely right. Uh, in our own country, for instance, Houston, at a be- beginning around this time of year, the huge metropolitan area of Houston has a has a major problem with ozone. Much of the Earth's ozone, which is a very small fraction of its total atmospheric composition, less than a hundredth or less than a thousandth of a percent of the atmosphere is ozone, and that's three oxygen molecules. Very toxic. It'll, it'll burn your lungs. Um, most of it is in the stratosphere. That's where it naturally occurs, but if you're in a polluted city like Houston or Beijing, I think has the same problems, especially a warm, a relatively warm, humid polluted city, and both of them fit that category in the summertime, you can produce from the tailpipe of automobiles a whole bunch of nitrogen compounds come out of the combustion And they can, uh, by some chemical processes of which I'm not an expert, can concoct ozone right in the boundary layer, right where we live in the atmosphere, which is an unnatural spot for it, but it doesn't do you any less damage to your lungs. So places like Houston, L.A., sometimes Beijing, they have ozone alerts uh, with a fair degree of regularity in the warm season because they tell you, if you've got respiratory problems, try to keep your air clean in your house because outside it's filled with ozone and it's not going to be good to you.
0: And just to make sure I'm following when you, when you talked about this time of year, yeah. it's because of the of the temperature of the air and the yeah. humidity in the air. Temperature
1: and the humidity are a big factor in cooking up the ozone in places like Houston, yeah.
0: Right. I mean, I part of my childhood was in Los Angeles mm. and we had ozone alerts all the time. Yeah. And it was but it's it, it's almost too hot in in LA all the time yeah
1: that's a little bit different than Houston that's right I think they probably have um, some of the conditions a little more frequently throughout the calendar year than they do in in Houston though the intensity of the events that are really you know um, marquee sort of events in Houston are worse than the ones they are in LA usually so they're more dangerous Interesting. So that's a whole different ballgame of air quality stuff.
0: Well, and I want to sort of compare that and talk about that. Mm. But I want to remind everyone you're listening to a public fair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host today, Carousel Baird. And we are talking with Professor Jonathan Martin, Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UW Madison. What are your thoughts about the air quality? Has it impacted you? Have you seen it here? I, You know, Have you noticed it here in Madison? I think we all have. Mm. Um, Has it impacted you beyond that? What are your questions or thoughts? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. We have Mary Jo ready with the phones. We have Jade and... Jay in the studio, ready for your calls. You can join us on the air or you can pass a message through to them to get to us. Any way you want to contribute, we would love to hear from you. Area code 608 256-2001 extension 9. Okay, so I do want to ask about how this compares to other types of pollution. The impact of Mm. um, wildfire versus what are other challenges uh, in air quality.
1: Yeah, well, we were just talking about the Houston ozone problem, and it's not relegated just to Houston, but that has its origin, one of its origins in exhaust from automobiles. And that's why it's a big problem in LA. And, and, And I should mention the topography around the LA basin makes it even worse because you can get what's called a temperature inversion sitting on top of the lowest part of the atmosphere in LA because the flow over the mountains will mm-hmm. warm the air up and you put a little bit of a layer of warm air on top of the air that touches the ground and it's hard for it to mix away. It you just ha-
0: it holds it down like it a does. It's a, like a, a, pot a lid on the pot. Exactly yes, that's right. how they used to d- describe it when I was a kid. Yeah, It's
1: accurate and that's why when you climb the high hills around LA you can see the brown layer of smog at the top because it can't mix away because uh, of the inversion. So that, that makes some of the conditions in LA are worse than they are in Houston. Houston doesn't usually have the inversion problem because there's no proximate mountain range. But... Um, So that uh, type of of air pollution is entirely a function of human activity and commerce. And uh, that can be mitigated if the right rules and the right approaches are taken. And the EPA has done a really, uh, it's hard work to figure this out. Because you got to, every single locality is going to have a different background ozone condition. And so you don't want to have a one-size-fits-all and make some cities out of compliance just because of where they are. Like L.A. would have that problem, Houston would have that problem. And so they try to be fairly even-handed about it. But if you come up with rules about what what is the uh, the thing you do when you exceed, you know, a certain ozone measurement or something like that, that's that's something we can um, keep our eye on and maybe come up with better controls. The wildfire stuff, though, we're really sort of at the at the uh, mercy of conditions, like we've been talking about mm-hmm. cyclone progression across a region, whether or not there's a major fire, and whether it's contained in a short amount of time. All of those things which are controllable by human beings at some point, but maybe didn't have uh, human instigation are still leaving us uh, at the mercy of the conditions.
0: Well what level of global warming though impacts this the dryness, the lack of precipitation that you know triggers the dry area that triggers uh, fires that burn you know, further and, and and hotter, which make them harder to contain, et cetera, et cetera, sort right. of the the impetus, is global warming part of the conversation?
1: Yes, it certainly is. There's no question about it. There are regional manifestations of the gradual warming that's occurring in the atmosphere. There's no question that that gradual warming is a function of human activity. It is not naturally occurring. Um, there have been naturally occurring cycles of of average temperature on the globe, but they over its long history, but they have cycles on the order of 50 to 100,000-year periodicity. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a sudden, since 1750, dramatic increase in the global average temperature. We don't 100% understand how that background change, which is undeniably a human activity uh, origin, how does that background change affect the distribution of weather systems, and therefore the, the distribution of precipitation. Uh, we have a few clues that the southwest part of the United States is drier now than it would have been in the absence of this background change. Maybe this event that just went on in central North America in May had a climate change um, fingerprint on it. That's—it's a little too quick uh, after the fact to be sure of that. But there's people who do what is known as attribution science. They try to attribute whether or not this extreme or that extreme event has its has any of the fingerprints of global warming in it by running a bunch of numerical simulations. There may well turn out that this unusually dry May in Central North America was at least partly a function of the background climate change, in which case it's easy to then say that the extreme fires that contributed to the extreme smoke plume were part of that um, same cause. Now, the cyclone that actually forced the plume right over New York City and Philadelphia, that may not be as easily attributable to climate change. That's just part of what you can get uh, at that time of year it happened to take advantage of that big plume that may have instead have been uh, maybe more climate forced than the cyclone
0: so what other factors besides climate change is is that what you're talking about of the example of the cyclone being there just as as it as it happened to be at the the perfect timing there
1: yeah there's uh, there's a lot of natural variability in the atmosphere an enormous amount of it and so it makes the skeptic about climate change, uh, the educated skeptic probably come uh, asking questions such as, "Well, how do you know that this fire had something to do with the background climate change? How do you not know that the cyclone may, maybe didn't have anything to do with it, or did? Somebody might say that it did, that it did. Um, those are not easy questions to answer. However," um, Predictions that are being made today or that were made 20 years ago about there's going to be an increase in wildfires in the southwest of the United States. The season will begin earlier, it will last longer. Those have all come true. No one has made the prediction, in the face of other evidence about the background climate change, that the wildfire season will be shorter and not as intense and will start much later. No one's saying that. So that leads you to believe, as a critically thinking person, there must be something to the fact that climate change is is forcing some of these changes in certain regions on us. And maybe the one here in Canada this year is the beginning of a manifestation of perhaps an earlier Canadian wildfire season in a warmer, drier world. Uh, Because the Canadian wildfires, even in the eastern part of Canada, are not unprecedented. What was weird this year is how early they started. So So
0: there's usually wildfires... There's no I mean, way th- there that's can't part can't right.
1: There's no way there can't be. Most of Canada, about 200 miles north of the border with our country, is unpopulated. Mm-hmm. So it's forested, um, and so there's huge amounts of uh, potential for wildfires, and of course that potential is realized almost every year. The question is, when does it start? How dry is the fuel? And how intense, therefore, is the resulting fire?
0: So how will this change, given that there are is an increase in conditions mm-hmm. for wildfires, and therefore there will be an increase in wildfires in their duration and intensity. Mm-hmm. How does air um, so air patterns impact what we're going to see in the, the U.S.? Because so far, if, what happened on the East Coast, it was an anomaly, right? This has yeah. never happened before. Right. What do we, should should we be looking at this as, Pay attention, this could happen again more than you think, or it still is a pretty unique incident.
1: It's a great question. I my own opinion about that, and I think that's probably all one could have at this stage is an opinion. There's there may be in in the in the wake of this event, there may be actual experiments that are run, and they'd be numerical experiments using climate models, numerical, computer-based models, to see Is there going to be an increase in the return time or decrease in the return time of such smoke events in the eastern part of the United States? And return time means how many years till we see it again. And uh, so this one was unprecedented in its intensity, which effectively means, you know, if an infinite return time up till now. Now, maybe it will become more common or at least the susceptibility to an event of that magnitude will be a little bit more something you have to figure in as the way that when you're developing whatever it is, your air filtration systems in large buildings or something like that. You might have to take account of the fact that this thing might be maybe every 20 years, not every 500 years anymore. Because the conditions that had something to do with its instigation are becoming more common because the background climate change is exacerbating those conditions. So that's, that's kind of the way I look at it.
0: So is there a response then to what just happened that can make us more prepared as not just the East coast communities, but as a country, right? Be, Cause I feel like sometimes when things happen in less populated parts of the country, including Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know, people pay attention and respond to it, but it may not get national attention when right. it happens to highly populated communities. Although as we're acknowledging air quality has been challenging in many big cities that's Los right. Angeles and Houston but what just happened to the east coast has it feels like gotten the United States to pay attention it's getting national attention that the air quality in Madison the days before did not get national attention that's to. right that's so right what do you think that will mean for the U.S. in being prepared for this coming again
1: that's a great question. I wish that I had a good answer to that. Uh, all I can do again is have an opinion. Um, I think to the extent that this event is, after it's happened, of course, now it's going to be fairly intensely studied, I'm quite sure, by air quality specialists, of which I'm not one of them, uh, but people who also are experts in the effect of a uh, small climate change on regional uh, weather and climate in Canada and the Northeast United States, and then there'll also be people who are interested, like me, in the weather systems themselves. So, the combination of those three big groups of scientists are probably going to give us a really good diagnosis of what happened with this event, and that will give us insights about whether or not it's likely to have had its uh, the fingerprints of climate change on it. To the extent that it has, we'll talk to public health officials. We'll we'll want to know. Was there anything that could have been done in buildings? Uh, Had they been built with better filtration systems? How many people died from this event? Probably quite a number of them did, even if they were in their own homes, Um, because if they had pre-existing respiratory problems. Those kinds of surveys are going to be the things that inform us about what do we do next, because I think lurking in the background is what we've already been talking about. These things are probably going to be a little more common in the future. Mm -hmm. So we need to have some kind of safeguards built into the way we house ourselves, the way that we deal with transportation, the way we do all sorts of other things that can take account of not only this event, but other uh, events that are beginning to show up with a little bit greater regularity. Miami, Florida floods every day at high tide. That's not because suddenly Miami's sinking into the ocean. It's because the ocean uh, sea level is rising and that's a function of climate change. If you live in Miami, you want to know what are we going to do about that? because it's not going to get better. It's not gonna, we're not going to suddenly see a freezing at the poles that will suck up all that water. It's going to get worse. And so the question is, what are we going to do about that? And the number one thing, I always come to this in a conversation like this, the number one thing I think we have to do as responsible citizens of our great country is no longer take statements from elected officials who will deny that this problem is even occurring. They, and if they say that, that means they don't have the requisite judgment to serve you or me <laughs> in a high office, and they need to go back to another job and get somebody in there who knows this is a serious thing and wants to take some action to co- mitigate against the, the effects.
0: And how important is it? You know, we were talking about, you know, preparing communities for this mm. and how it's, it, it's so interesting five years ago none of us had masks i didn't own a mask yeah me too no one knows what a mask is we don't have them to fit our children we don't have them in all the different colors that we have right and uh my my favorite like anecdote or the visual when i was reading about all of this was the comment that someone made of how opposite this was of um during covid when everyone had their mask and you would put on your mask when you went on the new york subway mm. here everyone was wearing their masks and shoot when they got on the subway and the, the doors closed and it was circulated oh, air yeah, they yeah. took their masks off <laughs> that's right um, yeah but it was just <laughs> sort of this concept of okay well we know how to do this we can put our masks on and we can go to work mm-hmm. and of course there was plenty of panic and justified justified concern and panic but there was also this level of community like, okay, we have tools to respond to this. The only reason they had these tools is because of COVID. Mm -hmm. But how do we prepare America so that we know what to do when this happens?
1: I wish I knew. I mean, uh, that's a public policy question of really high uh, profile. But you're, you're hitting on one aspect of our arsenal, which is we have to be amenable and flexible to being inconvenienced especially if we know how to deal with the inconvenience, as you point out. I mean, it's a great example. People wearing their masks outside walking the street, but taking them off because they feel they could get away with it in the subway. That's a smart response. And then putting them back on when they go back uh, up. So, sure, it's a bit of an inconvenience, but it's not an undue inconvenience. It's one that you can actually work around. And so, uh, the, you know, I, I think that some of these tragedies that have, have occurred in our country uh, have maybe made us a little bit more resilient and, and at least open-minded about how can we respond in a community way to, um, to, to, to really deal with some of these things. And then we look to our leaders to help us figure out a plan before they, they occur. And we, we should demand of our leaders that they have a plan and mm-hmm. that they articulate that plan and that we're all on board on that. Um, and I think we've had a bit of a crisis in that regard over the last 10 or so years, maybe five or so years.
0: We're talking right now with Professor Jonathan Martin. uh, uh, He's a professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UW-Madison. We're talking about uh, air quality and specifically the recent impacts from the um, wildfires in Canada. But we're going to take sort of a a more big picture conversation, too. But if you want to join the conversation, we'd be happy to hear from you. Area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. so, Professor, you made a comment about the work that you do, which mm. is, you know, measuring sort of the impact of the, the, the weather patterns and the weather symptoms. Mm. What are normal weather patterns in the U.S. that could, ha- should every community know this better so that they know, hey, if there's a fire here, it's going to reach me in a couple of days, given normal conditions are there mm. rules like that that we could have and arm us or it doesn't work that way
1: i think we could i think it hasn't happened simply because the nature of the transport of smoke is that it gets diluted on its path from a to b and um the other thing is that every single as we said before every single cyclone that will do the transport is going to behave differently because they're not all the same they all operate because of the same basic Formulation and and and, and uh, developmental rules, but they don't all behave the same. Sort of like human beings, you know. So you you have to um, therefore coming up with a rule of thumb or a series of rules that would say, hey, if there's a fire in Calgary or near Calgary in and, and, and you're in Madison, watch out for a day and a half later, you're going to have some smoke in the sky. That might be true sixty percent of the time, but it won't be true the other forty percent of the time because the things get carried away in different directions. So maybe that's the reason the variability of that kind of checklist is the reason why the underlying reason why there aren't such rules but if you're close to a fire i think it'd be a good idea to say in places that are prone to wildfires in the united states let's say you live in north in central wyoming and you're downstream from yellowstone yellowstone goes up every once in a while and the forest service lets it go because it's part of the natural cycle and when if that's the case, you want to know if you're in Lander or if you're in uh, Laramie. What do you do in the face of that? They may have local rules mm-hmm. that are, are kind of well known by people. I don't know. We don't tend to have that same threat. You know, you can have uh, in the um, in the the uh, what is it called? The uh, Boundary Waters area of Minnesota, up in the Arrowhead near Duluth, you can have pretty big wildfires. So, but I've never heard of any rules here in Madison that say, hey, if there's a big Boundary Waters fire keep this keep these things in mind it's a good idea
0: well it, it almost seems to me that if there's going to be more wildfires in the scope of the world and weather patterns although have some level of predictability they have also a huge level of variety yeah that everywhere in the u.s at some point has a likelihood of being impacted by wildfires to a degree Certainly that we weren't before.
1: I think that's a very fair statement. I think that's right on target. And so then the question is, what precautions can you, can you take by having an, a, an alert system? Well, there is the air quality alert system. So that's one thing that's already in place. You can, you're going to be told, maybe we have to change the way we broadcast that, perhaps, if this frequency increases, uh, so that everybody gets comfortable with it. Um, but that's already there. But maybe there should be other local rules uh, that you know might come into play in certain instances. I coached baseball a long time ago uh, for about eight years.
0: The movie Spaceballs.
1: No, no, no! I coached baseball. Oh, sorry. you coach yeah. baseball? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. missed that entirely. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but one
0: <laughs> Jay's over there laughing at me. I got to work on my hearing. Yeah. You coach baseball? Yes. Go yeah. ahead with one your story. One of the things
1: I noticed was that everybody knew how to read a radar scope. And that the refreshment stand at the West Madison Little League field had the local radar on. And Mm. everybody from all walks of life knew how to read that.
0: Knew what that meant when they saw the dots. That is
1: exactly right. And I have a feeling that incidents like this that just happened in New York City may increase the consciousness that the general populace has in our country about air quality. We're already broadcasting that information, people who are experts in it. It's part of of the way that that information is conveyed. I have a feeling what we're waiting for is a sensitivity to that information from the populace, and they're going to say, hey, it's summertime. I want to see if I have uh, poor or good air quality today. So
0: tell me more now, uh, then, about the air quality system, the measurements, and and how do I even... See where that where the air quality in Madison is. You Google yeah. it. I, mean, I, I, I think I, it's I did list- Google it and prepare for prepare yeah. for the show, but I had never Googled it before.
1: I think it's also listed on on the weather that's on the uh, phone apps. It, there'll be some statement somewhere in the broad thing. It won't be at the headlining thing.
0: M- must have always ignored it.
1: I think this is what we're talking about. Yeah, that that maybe that'll be less ignored, but it is there, and, and in fact, it probably needs to get a higher prominence is one way to think of it. I know in the newspaper, if anybody still reads the newspaper, I do, because I can't go without looking at the box scores in the morning. I need to see them. But there's an air quality statement every day on the weather page on the back of the front section. So there's a little bit there. But again, it's not the most prominent thing, but if you're alert to paying attention to it, you can find it. Hmm. And so maybe it's going to be a combination of raising the profile a little bit of those displays, but also a consciousness raising by the general populace that will get us to a spot that actually meets the goal that you seem to have in mind, which is shouldn't people be a little bit more aware of the impacts of remote events on their air quality and then take reasonable precaution to whatever their situation is to make sure it doesn't hurt them?
0: Yeah. Well, and air quality s- impacts everyone. Even if you don't have rep- respiratory uh, challenges, you know, you as an individual, you're still impacted by you the sure air quality. It, it still impacts your ability to breathe at that moment. And it's also, there's, pets and animals and and children and pregnant individuals and people were not even entirely sure what the impact is nor can all those entities communicate that's right that's right
1: it's very true it's very true
0: the city of madison um accepted a federal grant just recently more than four hundred thousand dollars to install 68 air quality sensors What are air quality sensors? What do they mean?
1: I'm thinking they're going to be sites where you're measuring particulate concentration, probably ozone, maybe some other chemical species. Um, Again, I don't know the exhaustive list, but there'll be those two that I mentioned first, uh, uh, particulate matter and ozone are almost surely on the list of things that these sites will measure. And then they'll have the obligation to report what they find. And so we'll be able to have a, a denser network over Madison of... Monitoring systems that actually tell us exactly what you're saying. We should be told what is the quality of the air today. Is there a high ozone alert um, across Madison? Let's just say these 18, or how many did you say? 18 news stations. No,
0: 68.
1: 68. So that means that there aren't already 68, is my guess. So let's say we have 30 right now. We're gonna have we're gonna augment that by a factor of two, and so the um, detailed ability to say, here's an ozone problem or here's another kind of pollution problem will not only be reportable, but we may also be able to say, oh, this is uh, the old Oscar Maya plant that's really at, at um, yeah. that's driving this because it, those monitoring stations right near it are the ones that have the high values. And I know they're out of business now, but there's other places that do business in town. So we can maybe have a better monitoring system of who it is who needs to adjust their strategies, their, their procedures to keep us all healthy.
0: Well, so then... Help me with this sort of, you know, forgive the clueless big picture question I'm mm. about to ask you, but the, the impact of air quality that impacts everyone. Mm-hmm. And then there's this aspect of we want to know about pollution from a local factory because there's local air quality. So are there different pollutants that travel at different speeds because they get to a higher level or the the role Wind plays. I told you it was sort of a clueless. Yeah. No, it's basic not clueless. Question. It's not
1: clueless. You shouldn't say that. Um, it's, but it's really not a matter of moving at different speeds. The, that will be the speed of these of the um, of chemical dispersion and all the acid is really dependent on the temperature of the air. So that's fairly uniformly well well spread. But it's going to be if you live near a factory that's putting out you know a certain kind of chemical and it does so six days a week. Let's say during its manufacturing uh, cycle you're closer to the source of that chemical. So the concentrations of it are going to be higher in your neighborhood than mm. they are downstream because it gets diffused as it moves away. So it's not that um, things are moving you know, faster in certain directions or whatnot. It's just that you're close to the source. And if you happen to be close to the source and this monitoring s- system detects a few new sources that we weren't ever aware of, That'll be a good thing for those neighborhoods. We'll be able to say, "Hey, you know, we're, we've been paying a price here, and we don't want to pay that anymore. You got to get your act together."
0: The closer to the source, the less it's diluted.
1: Exactly right.
0: That I can understand. That <laughs> all right. We have a caller, um, Scott. You had a question about climate refugees. Uh, totally fascinating, hmm. Scott. Thanks for joining our call. What do you, uh, our show? What do you think?
1: And thank you much for taking the call. Yes. Um, as um, my question for your guest is the uh, uh, ramifications of uh, potential mass dislocation, um, especially from uh, large metropolitan areas that are already stressed uh, for energy, for you know, uh, uh, water systems. You talked about flooding in Miami, and also New York has experienced some, you know, and the coast, New Jersey, some mass uh, flooding from uh, you know. Um, storms, storm surge, so I'm wondering if uh, your guest has any thoughts about potential for mass dislocation and where those people are all likely to go. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know the answers to that. Those are, um, you know, public planning type uh, experts would would probably know some more than I'm going to be able to say, but it's certainly true that there are going to be parts of the world, and let's uh, don't even have to focus on our own country, but we know parts of our own country, the coastlines particularly, that may uh, become a little bit less tenable fifty or a hundred years from now, and, and yet there, you know, these people who live there now are going to have to find a way to work around that. And some of those workarounds are going to be we're going to move somewhere else. I think that uh, in some ways, our winters are getting a little bit warmer than they used to be, and we're in a position in the country that's far away from those coastlines. I have a feeling to answer your second question: Where are these people going to go? They're going to come here. I mean, I think. As the years go by, the upper Midwest, the Great Lakes states, are Mm -hmm. going to become a real haven for people who may be fleeing uh, aspects of the climate-induced changes that they're seeing in other parts of this country. And then a lot of the smaller uh, island nations of the Pacific Ocean, are some of them are in real peril, and those people are going to have to go somewhere. And, um, you know, who knows where that might be, but we're going to have a a whole-scale... Issue of of uh, people moving around the planet, trying to find a dry place to live, a place where they can make a living, a place where they can grow things to eat, and so on. So that's it's part of our national security portfolio now, as far as I understand it, and uh, it will continue to be. I
0: uh, I have a follow up question to that, which is, do you think that there's part of our world that is less habitable because of air quality impacts?
1: Well, uh, people would argue that parts of um, Southeast China are uh, getting to be that way. I think Beijing has a consistent almost year-round air quality issue that they tried to hide from us when they had the olympics by just turning all the factories off for two weeks before the games began i mean everybody yeah. knew they did that it was kind of uh, almost embarrassing but um that's a place that's uh, very very difficult uh, to imagine if it continues to get worse who's going to be able to to live there mm-hmm. you know, that's mm-hmm. a problem
0: we have another call coming in from amy amy has a question about um the air quality app on her phone mm-hmm. amy what are you thinking it's quick and quick and and it's really an easy thing to do. Uh, I downloaded the NOAA app, mm-hmm. the National Oceanic was- and Atmospheric whatever NOAA N O A H. Yep. And it gives me real-time air quality. I have C L P D, so I have to be very careful. I also have an Active Weather app, but both of those apps um, give you in real time. So if the air starts getting hazy, like it is right now. I just log on and and it gives me exactly what what it means like up to twenty five up to fifty.
1: Yeah, that's um, great.
0: Last, last week was almost one hundred and fifty. So, uh, I would suggest that people get that and just click on it a couple times a day. And it, it's a very good monitoring system. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for this uh, this program, guys. It's really good. Thanks for listening, thanks. Amy.
1: It's NOAA National Oceanic and Atmospheric I Administration. Wrong. Yeah.
0: And that's just downloadable. You can just yeah. add an app.
1: And it's free because it's the federal government. So Hooray you're paying for it already. So
0: So in our our final minutes here, um, Professor, what can we do? What are our next steps? I mean, we've talked about sort of big policy and you know, obviously as always we encourage all of our listeners to keep these policies in mind when mm. they go to the election box and talk with their elected officials. But are there any things that we can do maybe on a more local community or even an individual level?
1: Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, and it's not, never an easy one to answer because everybody's circumstance is different, you know, and you never know what other people are dealing with in their lives. To the extent, I think a lot of the revolutions that we need are going to be led by people of means. You know, we have to change the way we do business. We have to change the way we get ourselves around town as much as best we can. We have to also avoid being zealots about that because that's going to turn off potential allies. So I always like to couch these these points that I have in my mind in those terms. Um, My wife and I are fortunate enough to be able to consider buying a hybrid automobile where we can get, you know, really good gas mileage. Maybe the family down the street uh, doesn't have that opportunity. I don't want to make that person feel like when he gets up to go to work uh, at 6 a.m. in his Mustang from 1992 that he should feel guilty about that. Um, but everybody can decide to turn the lights off. Everybody can decide to, um, when the opportunities arise, find alternative ways to fuel things or, or, or to do their business Um Maybe if you can walk to a store if it's close to you instead of driving every time. There's, there's things that, it, and there may be ancillary benefits to some of those things. But honestly, I think the biggest thing we can all do is just uh, make sure that we demand of candidates for public office at all levels that they ad, at least acknowledge these problems and that they demonstrate to us in that acknowledgement that they have a commitment to trying to work together as a community to solve them. No one's going to solve these problems in isolation. That's just not the nature of these types of problems. And we need to have collaborative, uh, cooperative, reasonable people uh, helping us to uh, run our local and federal governments. And to the extent that people don't look like that, don't vote for
0: them. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you. This has been a great conversation. I have learned so much. It makes me want to go back to college and sit <laughs> in your classes and learn um so much from you but it's just been a real pleasure talking with you and appreciate you spending your time with us oh
1: thank you carousel it's a real pleasure for me i appreciate you having me on
0: it's been great talking again with Uh, Professor Jonathan Martin, Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UW-Madison. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. And a huge thank you to Jade for producing today's show. Uh, Jay for engineering. Mary Jo for staffing the phones. Shali, our news director. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back again next week. Reminder, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Carousel Baird, and I'll see you again next week.
1: Media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct. We come and never pre-recorded. With information that would
0: never be reported.